Hey, it's Mark. Those sounds you're hearing, the echo of a leather-wrapped ball bouncing on hardwood, the squeak of rubber soles on polished wood, climax in the swish through a nylon net, bank off the glass or rattle off an iron rim. Mix in the blare of the crowd, whistles, air horns. Every game creates a magnificent cacophony all its own. Cutting through the din is the play-by-play announcer, whose job is to describe every shot for the audience listening on the radio or watching on TV. Think of some of the great sportscasters, Marv Albert, Dick Vitale, Kevin Harlan. They give voice to the sights and sounds and become our eyes and ears. But what if all the stimuli a commentator had to go on was of the non-visual variety? This week on the podcast, my colleague Jack O'Brien interviews Cameron Black, a sports journalist who recently became the first blind basketball commentator on TV. Earlier this year, Black used a system that combined haptic vibration with sound effects and a refreshable braille dashboard to call a New York Knicks game in real time. His feat, which was a resounding success, may one day help all blind and visually impaired people experience the game the same way he did at various stadiums, through an app. But, as I'm sure you'll agree after listening to Jack's interview, what transcends the technology is Black's own passion and enthusiasm for sports, and for pioneering new accessible opportunities for his community. And let's just hear with a health policy update. Hey, Mark, today I'll talk about the Biden administration's move last week to establish a framework around using margin rights to lower drug prices for the first time and what that would look like. And Jack, what three things are trending in healthcare this week? This week, we're talking about the ongoing controversy around Panera's charged lemonade. Lesha delves into whether a viral flaxseed mask is a natural alternative to Botox. And we unpack Netflix's hit docuseries, Bad Surgeon. I'm Mark Iskowitz, Editor-at-Large, and welcome to the MMM Podcast, medical marketing and media's show about healthcare marketing writ large. Welcome to the show, Cameron. Really appreciate you being on. Oh, I appreciate you having me, Jack. Absolutely. For those in our audience who may not know you and your story, you want to give a little background uh, for our audience to get a better understanding of who you are? Yeah, sure. I'll try not to ramble on too much. Uh, uh, Like Jack said, my name is Cameron Black. Um, I am based out of uh, Kansas City, Missouri. I was actually born in Norman, Oklahoma, lived there for 16 years, and then I've lived in Missouri ever since. Uh, So going on 20 years, I'm 35. And uh, I am completely blind. I've been completely blind for my entire life. And for about the last six or seven years since I moved to Kansas City, I have become a huge sports fan, huge fan of football, a huge fan of baseball and basketball. And that has caused me to take an interest in maybe doing radio work or sports broadcasting and trying to make a living out of that. And that that interest and that passion has uh, driven me to to kind of where I am right now and doing the interview on this podcast this morning. That's awesome. I really appreciate you giving the background so our audience gets a better understanding of who you are. I really wanted to focus. You talk about, obviously, the interest in sports. And I did promise before we started this interview that we'd have a question for the Chiefs, uh, for about the Chiefs later. So we'll, we'll circle back to that. But talk to us about your uh, work with Michelob Ultra. That's how you first came to my attention. I think that's probably uh, the primary interest for our audience uh, is how that all came together. Yes, sir. So that got started about a year ago, about a year ago in September. Well, I mean, that that's when I first had contact with Michelob. But I guess you could say that, honestly, it kind of started uh, several years ago when I really got into football. And I, I was doing some stuff locally, um, like I had been on a couple of radio shows just here in Kansas City. I wrote a blog uh, that I just wrote for like football and baseball, basically just to get people talking about it and then to stir, stir the pot a little bit, stir up conversation. And um, not long after that, I was featured on the NFL Network. I was elected to be the Blue Cross Blue Shield Chiefs Kingdom champion. This was back in 2018. And I got to throw out the ceremonial first pass at a Chiefs game. And I got to meet and shake hands with Patrick Mahomes. And he signed a ball for me. And the NFL Network came to my place and did a whole feature on me. And I believe that was how Michelob Ultra heard about me through the feature that the NFL Network did on me and also through my own writings and articles and pieces that I had written about football and about baseball and so forth. Anyway, they contacted me back in September of last year. And they said, 
that they were working on developing a technology. Michelob was partnering with some some tech companies on developing a technology would, that would help immerse blind people more in the world of sports, specifically basketball. And the reason, at least when I spoke to them, the reason that basketball was chosen is that in my opinion, out of the three major sports, football, baseball, and basketball, basketball is one of the most difficult sports for a blind person to follow because it is the fastest moving of those three sports. It is it's always moving, constant, fluid movement. You know, I always tell people football kind of moves in 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 jerks almost. There'll be a lot of movement followed by no movement. And then a lot of people feel like in baseball, they never start moving. Um, <laughs> I personally love baseball. Um, that's another conversation for another time. <laughs> so they wanted to start with basketball. And they basically hired me as what they called a consultant. They wanted my feedback and my input on what would make the game more accessible for a blind person. And what do I as a blind person feel that I am missing out on? What do I as a blind person feel that maybe I have a hard time understanding or a hard time visualizing? And how could auditory input and even tactual input or haptics, as they called it, be used to accentuate those areas that I feel like I'm missing out on. So I worked with them on that for several months and they documented, they made a documentary of the entire process from coming to my home in Kansas City here where I'm sitting now and introducing me to the technology that they were developing all the way to using it and teaching me how to use it and me commentating a live basketball game during the playoffs. So that is, that is kind of how I got connected with them. And that is the short version of what, of what we were trying to accomplish in the last year or so. And, and I obviously want to get to talking about actually commentating the basketball game, but digging in a little bit into actually kind of tweaking how the technology worked. What was that process like in terms of evolution? Because I'm sure it wasn't the first time they just presented it with you. It was fine-tuned and ready to go. I'm sure there were tweaks that need to be made along the way. What was that process like in terms of saying, this is how it would help me to be able to perceive the game and like you said, it's so fast moving. There's so many different changes and stuff. The technology has got to be able to keep pace with that too. It does. And there was a lot, there was a lot of conversations like before I saw any technology at all, I would just have phone meetings uh, with the tech team. A uh, gentleman that I spoke to the most, his name was Will and he was just fantastic. Um, just very, very willing to listen to what I had to say and seemed to really value my input. He was great to work with. And they they started by talking to me about this this suit they were developing. It's not quite a suit, but it's pretty close. They took, I believe they took a vest and some pieces that go on your arms and on your hands and on your feet. And I believe that they were originally meant for virtual reality. And Will and his team sort of reprogrammed them and we talked about the different things in basketball that I would need to know was happening. Like when a shot was a two-pointer or when a shot was a three-pointer or when there was a foul or something of that nature. So they programmed that the, the haptics suit, the haptics vest is what they called it. They would program the haptics vest and it vibrated in different ways according to whatever was going on in the game. If there was just a general like two-point shot, the entire vest and the things on my arms and my feet would vibrate twice. If there was a, a three-point shot, it would vibrate three times. If it was like a really special three-point shot, like a really good-looking shot, then there would be a, a – we, we call it a triple ripple. And it was a, a ripple vibration feeling that went up and down the vest and it did that three times. So that's, that's what we did with the vest. So the haptics – were able to help me understand what was going on in the game as far as that's concerned. And then we developed sound effects. And we had, when I brought, when I did the play-by-play -play for the game, we had speakers set up that were giving me different sound effects. And 
I had studied those sound effects leading up to the broadcast. So I knew what each sound meant. And we had, we had sounds for made shots. We had sounds for missed shots. We had sounds for fouls. We had sounds for turnovers. Um, so I, I got to know those um, and got to understand what they meant. And then finally, the third piece, and probably one of the most important pieces, was that we had a refreshable Braille display. And it was hooked up to a computer via Bluetooth. And the computer was on one of those websites that anybody can access where it provides you with live feedback from what's going on in the game. Like what the players are doing, what player is making what shot, where the player was when he made that shot, how much time is left in the game, what's the score, and then stats like rebounds, assists, points in the paint, things like that. So that was incredibly useful to me because that gave context to the feelings I was having through the haptics and the noises I was hearing through the speakers. I then knew like through the haptics and through the speakers, I knew when shots were made. I knew when three pointers were made. I knew when layups were made. I knew when fouls were made, but I didn't know who was making them and who was doing all that without the Braille display. So the Braille display provided me with all that context uh, that I needed uh, to have the full information of what was going on in the game. It's so interesting to hear you talk about this kind of multifaceted technological approach where you have all these different uh, pieces interfacing with each other so that you have the, the clearest sense of what's going on with the game. As it relates to the game itself, and I have to give a, a small shout out here that it's my beloved New York Knicks that you got to commentate the game for. What was that like? Was it kind of a learning curve as the game went on that you got more comfortable with it? Or was it from tip off that you were like, no, I have this and we're, we're rocking and rolling? You know, I think it was actually more the latter. Um, I was incredibly nervous leading up to it. And I have become a Knicks fan myself because of this experience. I'm not a New Yorker, but because of this experience, I've absolutely become a Knicks fan. And during the process of shooting the documentary, and I, this may make you jealous or not, maybe you've gotten to do it, I got to walk out onto the court and dribble a ball and play a little one-on-one -on -one with a friend of mine at Madison Square Garden. Oh. Uh, there was nobody there, but it was, it was absolutely incredible. Before the broadcast started, I was extremely nervous. I've, I've never done anything like that before. I've, I've, done, I've done radio interviews and I've done television interviews and I've done things like what I'm doing right now, but I had never in my life done anything like broadcasting a live sports game before. So I was incredibly nervous, um, but we had practiced so much and I've listened to so much radio myself. I, I, I listen to all my sports over the radio. And my favorite broadcasters are just kind of the ones who let loose and they get really excited. And you can tell that they are really enjoying what they're doing. They're very enthusiastic. They're very passionate. Uh, I am extremely fortunate that the broadcasters for the teams that I'm a fan of, the Kansas City Chiefs and my college team, the Oklahoma Sooners, both of those broadcasters, both those play-by-play -play gentlemen are just extremely enthusiastic and very passionate about what they're doing. So I just kind of, I just kind of channeled that and I was incredibly nervous, but as soon as they rolled the cameras and as soon as, like you said, as soon as tip-off happened, I was just calling plays. I was reading my Braille display. I was paying attention to the vibrations I was getting through the haptics. I was paying attention to the sound effects and the speakers around me. And I was basically just reporting it to an audience and telling them what was going on, but I was doing it as enthusiastically and with as much energy as I possibly could. And as soon as it started, I was just having fun. I, I wasn't really even thinking about the cameras or all the people there. I was just having fun. And I am live in Michelob Ultra Studios, about to bring you game three. I'll be taking you through tonight's action. And RJ Barrett! Slams it home from downtown. Yeah, baby. Garland commits a traveling turnover, however. Another turnover. Or with a bad pass. Top and alley oops a dunk. I've got a double ripple on that one. Slams it home. And that's the thing that matters most, like you said, anytime that there's an announcer that 
you can feel their passion. It, it only heightens it for you as a fan. And I'm sure that that came through for people that were listening to you commentate. Obviously, always happy to have another Knicks fan in the fold. Uh, sometimes they can feel few and far between given their history. I wanted to uh, talk about the response or the reception that you've gotten since you commentated that game. I can imagine it's very meaningful for the blind or the the heart of seeing population to be able to have somebody like yourself doing something that may even, you know, years or decades ago seemed uh, impossible or difficult to do. What is the response been or what is the feedback that you received? It has been overwhelmingly positive and it means, it means the world to me. Um, it really does. I, I can't even begin to express it from, and it really started from the moment that that game ended when that Knicks game was over. And I, I read off a bunch of stats from the game, and then I I said I said this is Cameron Black at the Michelob Ultra Studios signing off, and as soon as that happened, there was just this huge applause, and people were coming up to me and hugging me and shaking my hand, and uh, just made me feel really really good. And then since then, since the documentary has been released, um, the first few days it was released, I my phone just i had to put my phone on vibrate because it just it wouldn't stop going off i was getting facebook messages and i was getting text messages and i was getting um emails uh just from people who just said that how much that they watched the documentary and how much they loved it how much they meant to them and it was it was blind people it was sighted people it was uh it was anyone and everyone and it just um it meant a ton to me and I don't think that I realized the impact this was going to have, even when I was doing it. Because, um, like I said, I've I've done things similar, not to this large of a scope, but similar. And after it happens, you know, there's always that 15 minutes of fame that people talk about. It happens, and for a few days after it happens, I'll get some congratulations and I'll get some nice messages and some nice emails, and then it kind of dies down. And then it's it it's for lack and then for all intents and purposes, it's kind of over with. Uh, this has not died down. And I did it back in April. The documentary itself just came out a couple of weeks ago and I'm still hearing about it. And uh, that just makes me feel really, really good because that was the point. The point was to reach out and touch everyone, but to specifically I was aiming towards blind people and not not to exclude sighted people i of course want them to be touched by it as well absolutely i do but my message to blind people and to people with visual impairments was basically that you just need to you just need to follow your passion and you need to put yourself out there because you just never know what will happen with that i am sitting here on this interview with you because i got into sports and then I wanted an avenue to talk about it. So I started a blog and that blog gained the attention of the Kansas City newspapers, which gained the attention of the NFL. Uh, and it just kind of it was just kind of a domino effect from there. But it really started with me just following my passion. And that's what I want other blind people to do is is your life is not over just because you're blind. And you need to continue to put yourself out there and to do what it is you want to do, because you just never know what what might come from that. No, it's all right. That's why that's why we record so we can uh, take care of that. But it's it's such an important message that you bring there, obviously, uh, for the blind community to be able to be a prominent figure for them and give inspiration to them to be able to follow their passion and you know be able to accomplish what they set out to do. I'm curious from your own perspective, if whether you think that obviously this isn't like a one-off, it seems like this is a technology and opportunities that could be afforded to other people across various sports. I could see this easily translating over into football, baseball, you name it. What are your expectations for, you know, this type of work going forward? My hopes for the technology are extremely high. I, I know that they have already implemented it. Um, at Madison Square Garden, at least I believe they have. The talk was that they were using the technology that they tested out on me, and they were kind of paring it down and developing an app. 
And it was my understanding, and I, and I could be saying this incorrectly because I have not been super involved in the development of the app itself. So uh, forgive me if I if I misquote something, but it is my understanding that the app you can you when you go into Madison Square Garden, and I've been told that it's going to be throughout twenty six of the thirty NBA teams before this is all said and done. Right now, it's in Madison Square Garden. When you go into MSG you can log on to an app or a website in there. And if you are a blind or visually impaired user, it will give you the haptic feedback. So like your phone will vibrate according to what's going on in the game. But then there is also an audio descriptive um, component to it. And they have used my voice for that. So if you go into MSG and you are blind or visually impaired, or you just want to experience the game that way, you can log on to it. Um, I wish I had all the information, and I, I currently don't. And I think it's called a legacy. I think that's what they ended up calling it. But you can log on to it, and it will give you the the haptics feedback, and it will also have my voice, my AI voice anyway, um, giving you the audio description of the game. That, I've been told, is supposed to spread throughout the 26 NBA teams that Michelob Ultra sponsors. So that is very much what I'm hoping is going to happen. And then if that is successful, which I have no reason to believe it wouldn't be, they have not told me that they have intention of spreading it to other sports, but I, I can't see why they wouldn't. And I really hope, I hope as a sports fan that they would. As for myself, if I could make a career out of something like this, that would be a dream come true for me. I, I love being on the radio. I love doing things like what we're doing right now. I love sports. So I am hoping that this might also afford some career opportunities for myself. But obviously, my first concern, my first hope is that it spreads throughout basketball. It spreads throughout sports and it gives the blind and the visually impaired community the same opportunities that I myself have had. No, absolutely. And the fact that you know, your voice will continue to reverberate beyond that game and, and through the app and through this technology at various stadiums is very exciting. Like I said at the start of this interview, I did promise that we would have a little Kansas City Chiefs talk. And I know this interview will be airing later, but at the time of the recording, it is the morning of the big Monday night football game between the Eagles and the Chiefs. Obviously, you're coming to us from Kansas City. I'll ask you your thoughts about where the Chiefs stand right here about halfway through the season. And then, you know, if there is an expectation that maybe a back-to-back championship can be in the works. I mean, I think uh, I think the Chiefs are doing well. Um, there's there's obviously a bit of a struggle because I think I think the Chiefs' greatest struggle right now is at the wide receiver position. Um, obviously, we don't have Tyreek Hill anymore. We lost some guys in free agency, and I am not I am not uh, putting down the wide receivers that we have now. Like they're they're a good bunch. They're a good group. But it is it is it is tough losing the couple of guys that we have and that we had lost in, in free agency and losing Tyreek Hill. But they do seem they do seem to be to be finding their identity. Uh, it was a little bit tough at the beginning of the season. We lost a heartbreaker to the Lions here at home to start the season. That is not what any Chiefs fan was expecting. And then a few weeks ago, we lost a heartbreaker to the Broncos and broke a 16 game winning streak against them. Having said that, I still feel pretty good about where the Chiefs are. I mean, obviously, if you've got Patrick Mahomes, Patrick Mahomes on his worst day is still better than a lot of the quarterbacks in the league. So you feel pretty good about Patrick Mahomes. I feel good about the defense, which is not a sentence that I'm used to saying uh, with the Chiefs. Uh, it's not it's not a stellar defense, but I definitely see improvement on it every week. I think that tonight's game is going to be difficult. Um, I think the Eagles look really, really good. I think the Eagles are probably understandably so a little upset because they feel like they probably should have won last year's Super Bowl. Uh, And I'm not even sure I would disagree with that, um, to be honest with you. So I feel like this. it, it feels a little bit like a revenge game for them a little bit. Uh, but I think the Chiefs will be will be equally motivated because it's going to be the type of game where they need to they they need they need to show who they really are. They need to show that they can stand up to a team like the Eagles that is doing as well as they are. 
So it's it's going to be a good game. I'm excited for it. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Um, I will pick the Chiefs to win because they're my Chiefs. But it, but if they win, I think it's going to be by a narrow margin. Absolutely. And you talk about, obviously, the defense rounding into form for the Chiefs, which has not been the case uh, the past couple of years. It's been primarily offensive driven. But also we've seen, you know, the Ravens have had a number of injuries. The Bills have not been the Bills of the past. Joe Burrow's out for the season. So the path through the AFC, you know, who knows what it looks like, but it seems like it's a little easier than in years past for the Chiefs. I agree. I think the Chiefs and I just I just heard the other day, you know, you never like hearing this, even if it's even if it benefits your team. You never like hearing about a guy being injured. I, I don't ever celebrate an injury, never ever. And I did get a notification the other day that Joe Burrow of Cincinnati is out for the season, and I hate that for Joe. And I I wish him absolutely nothing but the best and a speedy, well recovery. I I will say that that of course, to your point, that does make things a little bit easier. For the Chiefs, Cincinnati has lost their quarterback. The Ravens are having issues. The Bills are having issues. So the Chiefs, they have their struggles, but I I, I, I agree with you. I think the road to the AFC has kind of panned out a little bit in their favor. And if they, if they continue to play like we saw in Germany and when they played against the Dolphins and a couple of the other games this year, I think uh, – I definitely don't think they are out of contention – at all. I think they could definitely end up um, going back to a Super Bowl, if not even repeating a championship. Absolutely. And and having seen that in my own lifetime with the Patriots of 04 and of 2003 and 2004, I think the Patrick Mahomes probably gives you the best chance. So it'll be interesting to see. Obviously, by the time this airs, our audience will know, one, how that Monday Night Football game panned out, but also where things stand as the playoff hunt intensifies. Cameron, I've really enjoyed you being on the show here, talking about your own experience and this uh, opportunity with Michelob, which, again, will have ripple effects down the line. Is there any parting message you want to send to our audience of medical marketers in terms of your own experience or just anything you want them to know? You know, I, I, I don't <laughs> I don't know a whole lot about things from the medical side, so I'm not really sure if I do or not as far as as far as that is concerned. But I guess if I want to if I want to say anything, it's just to I'll I just repeat myself, which is that. I've known a lot of blind people in my life, Jack. I've known a lot of blind people and visually impaired people. It is very, very easy to slip into a mode of stagnation and a mode of complacency and and just kind of just kind of going about your day and letting others take care of you. And I'm and I'm not I'm not wagging my finger at anyone who does that. I'm really not. I understand that. I really do, but it's it's really important to not do that. It's really important that if you're blind, if you're visually impaired, or even if you have any other disability, obviously I, I, the blindness is a personal thing for me, but any other disability this can apply to, your life is not over. Your life does not have to consist of you just being at home and, and not living it to the fullest. You can still follow your passions and you can still live your life to the absolute fullest and go out and do what you want to do and put yourself out there. And you just never, never know what will come of that. And if, if blind people and visually impaired people or people with any sort of a disability take anything from what I've done, I want them to take that. Again, I really appreciate you being on the show here and and not only giving us your time, but your insights on this entire experience and certainly wish you the best going forward. And it'll be interesting to see how this technology uh, continues to roll out across not only sports, but the broader uh, society as well. So thank you again, Cameron, for coming on. We really appreciate it. You're so welcome, Jack. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. My name's Cameron Black, signing off. Health Policy Update with Lesha Bouchak. The U.S. has long considered something known as margin rights or the ability of the federal government to seize the patents of drugs if they were developed with federal funding, all in the aim of lowering drug prices. Until now, margin rights, however, have never been used. But last week, the Biden administration announced it would develop guidelines around using these margin rights. Technically speaking, the government has had this power for decades, but it's never been used on drug manufacturers. 
Under the Bayh-Dole Act of 1980, the government has the right to march in and dictate the patents of products that are developed in public-private partnerships, such as drugs developed in collaboration with national institutes of health if they're too expensive. The federal agency funding the research for that drug could then license the product to another company that could make it available at a more reasonable price. In an announcement last week, the National Institute of Standards and Technology rolled out its draft guidance framework for marching rights, its goal being to assist federal agencies in deciding how and when they should exercise the rights. HHS Secretary Xavier Becerra said in a statement that, quote, Marching authority is one powerful tool to ensure that the American taxpayer is getting a fair return on their investment in research and development. Today's call for comments is an opportunity to better understand how marching authorities can impact price and better promote equitable access to prescription drugs. Marching rights, however, have long been considered a controversial option for drug pricing regulation. Industry groups unsurprisingly voiced their opposition to the Biden administration's plan. Neil Bradley with the U.S. Chamber of Commerce said in a statement that the organization would use every tool at its disposal to, quote, stop the administration from destroying America's ability to discover the next breakthrough treatment or cure. Let's be clear, seizing patents is a confiscation of property, Bradley said. If patents for medicine are seized today, what property will the government seize tomorrow? The Biden administration said it will provide a 60-day commenting period in which industry and the general public can offer their thoughts on the draft guidance before finalizing the policy. I'm Lesha Bouchak, senior reporter at MMM. Trending. And this is the part of the broadcast when we welcome Jack O'Brien to tell us what's trending on healthcare social media. Hey, Jack. Hey there, Mark. So we had a couple of stories that missed the cut this week. The first being Carolina Panthers tight end Hayden Hurst saying he was diagnosed with post-traumatic amnesia by an independent neurologist as a result of a hit he took in a game against Chicago last month. And actor Jeremy Renner spotted at JFK wearing a leg compression device amid an arduous recovery from a snowplow accident that left him with 30 shattered bones. However, we begin today with the news of the week, revisiting Panera's Charged Lemonade. Some may recall from our episode in October that we discussed the wrongful death lawsuit against the fast casual restaurant chain, alleging that a 21-year-old with a heart condition died after consuming a Charged Lemonade, which is a heavily caffeinated energy drink that she may have believed was a regular lemonade. Now, Panera is the subject of a second wrongful death lawsuit regarding its energy drink. Late last week, the family of Dennis Brown, a 46-year-old Florida man who passed away in October after consuming three servings of the drink, alleged that Brown suffered a cardiac event while walking home from a Panera location in Fleming Island in early October. The family alleged that the company, quote, knew or should have known that the drink could pose significant risks to certain customers, including those that are sensitive to caffeine. As Lesha brought up in our previous conversation, a regular size of a charged lemonade contains around 260 milligrams of caffeine, which is the equivalent to about four shots of espresso. The second lawsuit has not only resurrected public attention to the controversies around charged lemonade, it's also made a bunch of memes. Social media users have posted hundreds of thousands of memes and jokes about the, quote, lemonade that kills you often in a darkly comedic or overly sarcastic tone about everything from geopolitics to diet to what it would do to the body of a sickly Victorian child. One tweet that stuck out to me was, quote, y'all, when the COVID vaccine came out, I got to do my own research. Y'all, when the Panera releases a killer lemonade, and it's a clip of a guy chugging the drink. It's important to note that amid all of this, lawsuits and memes alike, that Panera is eyeing an IPO, having filed to go public confidentially last week. And Lesha, I want to bring you into the conversation because whether it's Instagram, X, formerly known as Twitter, you name it, I go on social media and whether it's a serious account or just some guy, everyone's talking about this thing. Yeah, you know, I would have assumed that Panera would have either taken the product off of their menu entirely the last time someone died from it, or they would have put some serious warning labels in place but it appears they did not do either of those things um, because, you know, unfortunately, 
someone else drank way too much of this product. Um, I guess this person um, had a mild intellectual disability, according to NBC News, and he also had high blood pressure. So he generally avoided energy drinks. So clearly he probably wasn't aware of the caffeine amount in this product. As we mentioned the last time, Panera was kind of marketing this charged lemonade as being clean and plant-based, as sort of like a refreshing, almost like a juice kind of thing. That was sort of what I got from it when I would look at it on its website. Um, It was unclear to me even that it was actually a caffeinated drink. And since the first person died, they did change their website to add some disclaimers. They said that the charged lemonade is, quote, naturally flavored, plant-based with about as much caffeine as our dark roast coffee. It urged customers to use it in moderation and said that it's not recommended for children, people sensitive to caffeine, pregnant or nursing women. But apparently even with these disclaimers on the website, people are still unaware of, you know, some of the dangers associated with it. And maybe that those disclaimers aren't clear when people are in the actual store or like, I don't know, you know what the stores are saying about this. So um, clearly it's still being marketed in a misleading way. But it's also one of those things too, that like you can put all the disclaimers on your website, like anecdotally speaking, I, when I'm walking the streets of New York or I see people on the subway or something, I see a lot of people still buying this thing. And I almost wonder if there's this kind of morbid interest that people have where they're like, oh, it's the, quote, lemonade that kills you or it's got all this caffeine or something. I got to try it. Mark, I want to bring you in here because obviously there is an unintended side effect, I imagine, to all of this where it's like there is the fear related to, you know, it potentially causing the deaths of two people. And then consumers are like, well, I kind of want to try it now. I want to see what the hype's all about. Like that morbid curiosity, right? Yeah. Um, Or like, you know, the uh, after effects of erectile dysfunction drugs, you know. Exactly. uh, Might last for, you know, 48 hours. Oh, well, you know, maybe we should try that. Yeah. Uh, But uh, um, not to mix metaphors there, but, uh, (laughs) um, you know, the the, the fact that they're marketing off of this and they could potentially profit from that um, is, uh, you know, pretty warped kind of reminds me like sort of in a microcosm of kind of like debate, the debate the FDA faces uh, when um, a, a marketer proposes to take a drug from RX to OTC. You know, mm-hmm. you have to uh, foresee how, um, you know, the, the range of, of consumers that might take this off the shelf. Um, and, you know, when you take a physician's um, advice out of the equation, you know, what, what are the dangers that could happen? And, and, you know, we're seeing that kind of play out in real time. You know, the guy in, in the most recent suit here drank three of these beverages, totaling a, a whopping 780 milligrams, whereas the Mayo Clinic says that on average 400 milligrams of caffeine per day is safe for adults. And in, in, in October, the earlier case you mentioned, that was a 21-year-old with a heart condition who died after consuming just one of these heavily caffeinated drinks after uh, believing it was regular lemonade. Um, so there's, you know, sort of a couple of examples of, you know, unforeseen consequences of, of people taking this, um, you know, unawares. And I'm just kind of wondering out loud, how much longer can this go on before regulators take a closer look? I know Chuck Schumer, uh, the senator, had called on the FDA to investigate Logan Paul's energy drink, which the three of us had spoken about back in October. So uh, they could be getting a phone call. And it is one of those things, too, where it's like the first time it happens and it's like, oh, is this just an outlier? Like we talked about in the show because obviously made headlines, but like, was that just a freak case in terms of, you know, wrong place, wrong time? Then you see this and just... Clearly, the meme economy is still going well because, again, it's everywhere and it has gotten so many. When I was doing research before throwing this in the show, like, you know, Slate has a whole think piece that they put on it. I know that the Times is covered. Like, it's gotten so much mainstream coverage that you do wonder if it does, you know, beget some sort of action, whether on the congressional level or on the regulatory level to stepping in here. But for the time being, it's still available and Panera is still charging ahead bread bowls in hand for an IPO. So, I guess we'll see what comes of that. And uh, what's, what's the drink that's actually called like Red Death or something? Red Death? Um, something with death in the title. Oh, Liquid Death. Liquid oh, Death, yeah. right, Liquid death. right. So they got nothing on these guys. <laughs> no, exactly. And they actually, they this is apropos of nothing, but they, they had their own Arnold Palmer knockoff that they had used that played on the name. And the Palmer estate had said that they would sue them if they didn't change the name. So they changed it to Dead Billionaire. <laughs> and... So that's its own, that's its yeah. own, it's separate from medical marketing, that's its own marketing. Yeah, There's a whole genre of marketing. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> into. Alesha, what do you got for us next? 
So flaxseed is making the rounds as the next big health trend on TikTok, and dermatologists have taken notice of the supposed skincare fix. It all started with a video from TikTok creator Victoria Benitez, in which she claims that flaxseed, a seed that's associated with good digestive health, given that it's high in fiber, mixed in water can be used as what she claims is an alternative to Botox. Benitez's video has gathered more than 6 million views since she posted it in mid-November, sparking a craze around flaxseed masks as an alternative to Botox. You see this right here? This right here? This is Botox. This is Botox that you make at home, honey. And the best part, it's two ingredients, flax seeds and water, flax seeds and water. She goes on to tout the endless benefits of flax seeds from being a natural shampoo to an at-home soap to being used to bake bread and as a good digestive tool. She claims it's anti-inflammatory and the fatty acids are good for your skin. Since then, thousands of others have jumped on the trend with videos showcasing the step-by-step process of making the face masks at home. But based on the majority of dermatologists' responses, it's safe to say that flaxseed masks won't do much for your skin. Dr. Scott Walter, or at Denver Skin Doc, is one of the leading dermatologists on the platform who has posted commentary on the matter. In a reaction video, he pointed out that essentially all a flaxseed mask is doing is creating a glue that temporarily tightens your skin. So yes, it can temporarily tighten the skin as the mask dries, Walter said. But is it going to give you any long-lasting effects on your wrinkles? No. Flaxseed can be healthy if it's included in your diet. It's often used to ease digestive issues or constipation and also has benefits for your overall cardiovascular health as it can assist in reducing total blood cholesterol and bad cholesterol. Many nutritionists recommend adding ground flaxseed into breakfast cereals, yogurt, or even baked goods. Generally speaking, though, experts suggest sticking to using flaxseed in food rather than as a skincare hack. So, you know, we've obviously talked about, uh, you know, the flavor of the week on TikTok when it comes to some of these health trends and and skincare is a huge one. Um, But it is mind blowing to see how many viral videos with like literally millions of views that are around flaxseed masks and people really believe that it's good for your skin. But the experts are saying it's not. It reminds me when you, we were talking on the show a few months ago about the taping where people were taping their skin oh, right. and like going to bed or something. And you had brought up one of the uh, doctors that was on the app and basically said like, yeah, it'll do it like short term, but this mm-hmm. isn't a long term. Yeah. And this is the same thing with the flaxseed thing. It's like, yeah, it'll tighten it up. Like I assume for a couple hours or something. But if you're looking for the long lasting effects that people go for Botox treatments, this is not it. And I appreciate you including there. It's like flaxseed does have a purpose. It's like if you're eating it, it has a digestive purpose. Mm-hmm. Like the idea of like this person saying, you know, this is Botox. It's like it's not Botox is its own thing. Botox has its own separate chemicals and its own purpose. And, you know, there does this work in some sort of like temporary way, I suppose. But like it's also misleading to go out there and, and say that on the app and get six million views saying it. Too. Yeah, absolutely. So. Right. And meanwhile, they're profiting from having these millions of views on their uh, videos. But, you know, Jack, I'm glad you, you brought up the earlier hacks that, we, that we've seen. And I'm always like you waiting for that cringe line, like, you know, <laughs> where we saw like the uh, shaving down teeth, you know, these things that, that can really um, have a um, really harm people. This does, seems to be harmless other than the fact that it's, you know, wasting a lot of people's time. Uh, but, you know, Taking a step back, um, I was reading some of the uh, news stories written about the rise of dermatologists who are now kind of jumping on a lot of these uh, routines and and skincare hacks and and debunking them. And, you know, if we we think about how TikTok kind of rose to prominence, it really rose to prominence through these viral dance challenges. Uh, And now we're seeing more of these, you know, skin hacks becoming more and more common. And it was like the people that are, you know, doing this for a living Obviously, they have kind of a, an, an edge because uh, they're testing products, they're trying stuff out more so than the typical dermatologist probably is, who kind of is kind of, you know, trying to stay up to speed on actual conditions and, you know, uh, FDA approved products, you know, for, you know, common skin conditions. So they're at a disadvantage, but, um, and, you know, the, but these these people on TikTok, you know, the, the way they espouse these uh, approaches, they, they do it with such authority, you know, that mm-hmm. it seems like they're 
they're backed by scientific credible evidence when they're really not. Um, so it's good to see, again, that this was a situation where the dermatology community kind of jumped on it and debunked it, um, hopefully before, you know, any kind of real damage <laughs> could have been done. And, so. it, and it does seem like one of those things, like I know that we've talked a lot about X, Twitter, whatever we want to call it, and the challenge that a lot of HCPs have being there because it's like, how do you compete with misinformation in a place where it seems to not only flourish, but be rewarded? Like it, the way that Twitter has allocated its creator fund, like if you go out there and you say something wildly speculative or wrong, I think about, to take an example from this week, like the Shohei Otani free agency stuff, there was so much incorrect and misreporting, but people were getting their retweets, getting their likes and whatever, and they still get paid off of that. Imagine if you have the same thing with medical misinformation and you're, you have no financial incentive to tell the truth, to be more accurate, to do whatever. And I know that, you know, Lesha, you've talked about this too, where TikTok has been trying to figure out how they wrangle that in on their platform. But it seems like, you know, the more that these things happen, yeah, if you get 6 million views, what is your incentive to go back and be like, by the way, it's not Botox, it's right. just vaccine. Right. Like, right. you know, there there is none of that. Or you do it later on, it doesn't get the same pub as the original lie does. Yeah, like what's what's Twitter's, uh, you know, when the community kind of intervenes? The community notes. Community notes, maybe we should good to see something similar there yeah here to that and i don't even know i assume if you did that on tiktok maybe it pops up in that would be like the pinned top comment Mm -hmm. or something but i don't know there just doesn't seem to be that same i know that they they say that they're trying right there's no system in place at the moment um aside from the fact that i think hcps are starting to realize they have to be more present on the site to offer that counterpoint and we're starting to see the little more we're starting to see you know tiktok physicians really starting to build brands for themselves and then do these reaction videos um, because, you know, the the young people who are on the site, they're not going to be searching on the Cleveland Clinic website about, mm. you know, does flaxseed work as skincare. Uh, you really have to be on this on the platform itself to be able to counter some of that misinformation. I think HCPs are starting to jump on that and we'll probably Absolutely. see that grow more. Right. They're, they're learning, you know, from, yeah. this, from the so-called skinfluencers, <laughs> what all the new trends are, you know, if nothing else. Right. Um, so. Well, if we're looking for a good segue, obviously we're talking about the responsibility of HCPs to act in good faith and to actually lead by example. Netflix delved back into the world where that doesn't happen. They have a three-part docuseries out called Bad Surgeon, Love Under the Knife, where viewers are introduced to internationally renowned surgeon Dr. Paolo Macchiarini and his revolutionary stem cell-infused windpipe transplants. However, while the show initially portrays Macchiarini as a charismatic health innovator that drew comparisons to George Clooney, interviews with his colleagues at the Karolinska Institute in Sweden and his former fiance and NBC News producer cast a different light. Without giving too much away in terms of spoilers, patients who were thought to have had their breathing abilities restored by his procedure are dead. His relationships and professional accomplishments are found to be fraudulent. And Macchiarini is revealed to be one of the most prolific frauds in modern medicine. I think that anyone who has been intrigued by the uh, Elizabeth Holmes saga, in addition to all sorts of different fraud stories, they don't have to necessarily be healthcare related, would find this interesting. It's a very quick watch. I was able to do it while folding laundry. So if that gives you any sense in, in terms of my process, but it was very interesting just in terms of Netflix, you know, you talk about your financial intensive incentives they love to go back to the liars and the crooks of the world and this guy was one of the top ones i'll tell you that yeah i think uh you know this idea of like the true crime you know docuseries whether on podcasts or you know television shows are definitely super popular so it's kind of interesting to see like the medical true crime thing kind of come into light here with this one i didn't get the chance to watch it but i do remember hearing about this guy you know in previous years and i looked him up and and i guess this summer he was actually sentenced to a few years in prison Mm -hmm. for all of these uh charges that just happened like i think in june or july um so apparently he'll be in prison for about two years which you know don't know if that's enough or whatever but um that's kind of where he has he is right now I, w- I would say you can watch the documentary and you can make your own judgment in terms of what his punishment is. I think one thing that's infuriating, and, and Mark, I just want to get your thoughts, bring you in here too, is, you know, he he was basically living a double life and not only in his professional sense, but also in his personal sense. And his fiance, the NBC News producer, there are so many times while I was watching, I was like, oh, yeah, I'm like, you claim to be a journalist and <laughs> X, Y, and Z here. There was one part where she said that the Pope was going to marry them. Hmm. And... 
there was very little at all in terms of like, maybe I should fact check that more. She just looked up and it's like, oh, the Pope does marry people. It's like, yeah, he marries people. But like, is he going to marry you specifically (laughs) in in the Vatican? So, (laughs) yeah, there were a lot of infuriating instances. But as as Lesha pointed out, you know, Netflix loves its its docuseries. If there's a true crime angle, it doesn't matter what the industry is. They're going to find it. Absolutely. And as a cautionary tale. Uh, these things are out there, you know, uh, lest anyone, uh, you know, be taken in either by a fraudulent, uh, you know, professional so-called um, or by, uh, you know, significant other. But, um, you know, it reminds me a little bit um, for some reason of the Dr. Roxy case, the mm-hmm. Ohio plastic surgeon who live streamed procedures on TikTok and who was subsequently banned from practicing medicine. Um, and her profession was was also very kind of slow to act on her. Her actions kind of came to light as early as 2018. You know, there, there were concerns over, uh, you know, possible ethics violations um, and, uh, and so forth. So these things take a, a while to percolate sometimes through. Um, and uh, you hope uh, that uh, there won't be any future cases like this where there were actual de- actually deaths involved uh, before uh, their, um, you know, fraudulent uh, uh, behavior was discovered. And kind of like the Theranos thing, too, it underscores the role that whistleblowers have in any industry, but especially in healthcare. Like they they highlight in the documentary where they're like, this guy was not testing on animals before he was testing this out on humans. These weren't like pure grade medical devices. It was like a little tube of plastic that he was jamming in people's throat. Like there were all these sorts of things. But you talk about this being an arduous process and, you know, the threats to their professional careers for coming out and challenging somebody that, again, people were like, oh, this is medicine's George Clooney. He's all over the world. He's death to die. question. Like, right. Exactly. So it's like, that's the role. It's the same thing that Theranos ran into. How dare you question Elizabeth Holmes? How dare you question, you know, any sort of fraudulent bad actor in the space? It's, it's easier said than done. You have to, you have to question, you have to continually hold people to standards. Mm-hmm. Um, and you don't have one set of standards for one company or person and another for another you know, person or company. That's just a, a good reminder of that. So yeah, absolutely. It's, it's interesting that the journalist actually met him, the journalist that he she was engaged to him. She actually met him when she was doing a story on him. So yes. he was actually originally one of her sources. And it's just like funny and strange that she didn't actually do any of that real investigating into, you know, his uh, his reputation and his actual track record. But, well, and she talks about it, too, where she's like, was the whole point of him even like pursuing a romantic relationship with her because she could give him cover. Like when the story broke, I think it was initially in 2014 mm-hmm. that there were concerns about his work and deaths of patients. And she was like, oh, well, no, this is wrong. And she's putting her own credibility on the line for somebody mm-hmm. that, as you watch in the documentary, mm-hmm. had a lot of lies at his disposal, had a lot of a lot of untruths that he was. You know, so he was using that as leverage. It uh, seemed it seems like that. Quiet, that was right? that was her working theory. And, and Holmes's case, you know, she fooled some very prominent journalists, yeah. you know, even mm-hmm. without that. Um, you know, just through her ability to um, speak authoritatively, you know, yeah, but journalists, without proper scientific uh, evidence, we come full circle. Here. Yeah, journalists and journalists and statesmen. I mean, <laughs> right. as long as you got that, what else do you need? Absolutely, it's, it's two main ingredients. Thanks for joining us on this week's episode of the MMM Podcast. Be sure to listen to next week's episode when we'll be joined by our final guest of 2023, Kathy Delaney, the Global Chief Creative Officer at Sachi and Sachi Wellness. Take care, everybody. That's it for this week. The MMM Podcast is produced by Bill Fitzpatrick, Gordon Failer, Lesha Bushak, and Jack O'Brien. Our theme music is by Sizzy M. Sohn. Rate, review, and follow every episode wherever you listen to podcasts. New episodes out every week. And be sure to check out our website, mmm-online.com, for the top news stories in pharma marketing. <laughs>